We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be verses 2 through 10 tonight. We probably won't get as far as verse 10, but uh, we're going to do our best to cover more than one verse like we did last week. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, Paul continues on and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you may become so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us, from the wrath to come. Now, we're not going to get all the way into all of these verses, but I wanted to kind of read this full section here to give you an idea of the context of what's going to be going on tonight. Now, remember, as we looked at last week, Paul especially and his companions, but more Paul than his companions because he has sent his companions, Silas and Timothy, back to check on these churches. But Paul especially hasn't seen these people in a while. And Paul is writing to them to encourage them and spur them on to more spiritual growth. Now that he has heard from Timothy that their faith is real and they are doing well. If you remember from our study last week, we looked at the fact that when Paul was there in Thessalonica, the church got started. But then it was immediate persecution and they got chased out of there not long after. And Paul wasn't sure if what had been started there was real and we're going to deal with a lot of that stuff later on in our study, in, in our study of these books, First and Second Thessalonians. But he was concerned, so he sent Timothy back when he went to Athens. He sent Timothy back to check on them. And go to First Thessalonians chapter 3 again. Look at verses 1 through 8. Kind of catch you up with why the book has been written here. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So, as we see, Paul has, is writing to them saying, I just got good report from Timothy, as he's in Corinth now in AD 51, writing this letter back to the church in Thessalonica. He's going to encourage them that they would grow in their relationship with the Lord, but he's thanking God for the fact that their faith is real. Now, but also notice something that Paul says here. Notice how even though they've been separated and they didn't have Facebook, Paul and Timothy and Silas prayed for them regularly. 
Go back to verse 2. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. I was uh, doing some premarital counseling uh, last night. And in doing so, I got talking with this young couple. And it hit me as we were talking with them because their engagement, they're separated. It didn't hit me until I thought about it and was talking to them that when Becky and I were dating and engaged, we were separated most of the two years that we were engaged and, separate, uh, and dating, she was in Tallahassee and I was either here or I was over in, uh, in New Orleans in seminary. And then, then it hit me. We didn't have any email. There were no cell phones. You couldn't text. We definitely didn't have Facebook and video chatting. If we had to talk to each other, it was on landline and you had to pay a long distance phone bill and back then, Becky and I only could talk to each other on Mondays and Thursdays for one hour. That's all we could afford for our phone bills. So Monday at a certain time, we would have it set and one would call the other and Thursdays as well. And we would have an hour to catch up. We spent the whole rest of that time not knowing how they're doing, what's going on. And you look forward to those times. Paul has been separated from these people now and he doesn't know. I mean, he's, he's pouring his life out for them. He's suffering for them, and he doesn't know how they're doing. So he sends Timothy back, and he finds out they're doing good. But he didn't just say, well, I won't think about them until, I get, until Timothy gets back. What's he been doing the whole time? Constantly praying for them. Folks, I'm going to say something to you that you probably know, but we need to have it re reminded to us. Praying for each other is not only good for the people we pray for, it's good for us too. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I just want to take you real quickly to a few scriptures that talk about the importance of praying for each other. Go to James chapter 5 and look at verse 16. In James chapter 5, verse 16, we just finished studying the book of James. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We looked at the fact when we studied James that this is not talking about physical healing as much as it's talking about spiritual healing. But again, he says, pray for each other. You need to pray for each other. Go to first, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, look at verses 9 through 13. In Colossians 1, verses 9 through 13, Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, before we jump on, don't miss what's happened here. Paul says in verse nine, and so from the day we heard, we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then here, here's his prayer. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And then Paul starts preaching to himself. Did you catch that? 
preaching to them and preaching to himself for an all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints and light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As Paul was praying for them and he was asking God that they would be strengthened in their walk with him, thanking God for their salvation and praying that they would come to know God more, the Spirit of God began to encourage Paul with, hey, what I started, I'll finish. And now his prayers turned into, God, I'm praying for these people right now, and I, I really want them to come to know you better, and I thank you that you saved them. And by the way, if you saved them, you're going to finish what you started. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God and the Word of God started to fill up within Paul. He was, was praying for others. He started to get encouraged. You guys are going to be all right. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, I'm still going to keep praying for you. But his prayer was for them, yet it was also for him. Let me show you another interesting situation. Go to the book of Job. Look at Job chapter 42. Look at verses 7 through 10. Job 42, verses 7 through 10. This is at the end of Job's encounter with God. Of course, his friends had been accusing him falsely. And in Job 42, starting in verse 7, it says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me as of what is right, as Job, my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Isn't that interesting? When God has his little court session there with Job and Job's friends are there, he says to Job's friends, by the way, you guys were all talking about how I am and who I am and all that. You haven't spoken to me what is right. Oh, you said things about me that are true, but they didn't fully apply in Job's situation. And you acted like you knew his heart when you didn't. You acted like you knew things like I know things and you see things like I see things and you were wrong. And to be honest with you, I'm a little upset with you guys. But I'll tell you what I'll do. If you guys are willing to humble yourself and bring a sacrifice and you ask Job to pray for you, I'll listen to his prayer. Before I explain it, go to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Isn't that interesting? Why is God telling us to pray for our enemies? Why is God telling Job, pray for your friends because of the, they're in the wrong and I'm upset with them right now? Why did God say, I'm going to accept Job's prayer on your behalf? Why do you think God was having him go through this ritual, if you will? I don't like the word ritual, but it's the only one that can jump in my head at that time. It's what, what's that? It puts ourselves in a lower state. It definitely puts ourselves in a lower state. And we stop trying to be God in these people's lives. And we hand them over to God. 
Isn't that what Jesus did? Go ahead. It starts the process of forgiveness. In it starts the process of forgiveness in our hearts. You got it. Jesus, while everybody was mocking him, ridiculing him, spitting on him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And aren't you glad the Father heard Jesus' prayer on our behalf? Folks, I'm going to say something to you. When we pray for others, even our enemies, God does a work in our hearts, too. As we release them to God, we get peace instead of worry and joy instead of anger. you got some things going on in your life, and especially with relationships, and I can guarantee you, if you're human, you do. All right? Pray for the people that are on your good side. Pray for the people that are on your bad side. You got people on your good side. You want to see God bless them. You want to see God do things in your life. There's things that are, they're going through and you would love to see God's blessing. Pray for them. Bring them to God because honestly, the, he's the only one that can really fix their situation. And on top of that, you got people on your bad side. Guess what? Bring them to God as well. Because as you do, you've now handed them over to the Lord. And all of a sudden, the frustration you have with them will go away and go down because you're now handing them to the Lord. One of the ways you'll know you really did pray for them and hand them to the Lord is you won't be bothered by it when you give them to God. I've for years used this illustration to people when I'm teaching on this. I'll say if you're walking down the street somewhere in some neighborhood and someone hasn't cut their grass, should it bother you? Should it bother you? No. You know why? It's not your grass, right? It's not your grass. Now, in the same way, when I give someone over to God, they're no longer my grass. They're the Lord's grass. And he gets to deal with it when he wants, how he wants. If he wants to let it grow for a while and the situation doesn't get better, if it bothers me, it's still my grass. But if I've handed you over to the Lord and you still haven't changed your mind or you're still being mean to me, the fact that I'm bothered by it means I'm still taking it as my grass. But once, once I give you over to the Lord, you're, that's no longer my grass. You are now the Lord's grass and he's going to deal with it. Folks, it's good for us. It's good for each other. We need to pray for each other. We all talk about the armor of God and we're not going to go there time-wise. But in Ephesians 6, when it lists the armor of God and we always end with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I think there's another part, though, when it talks in verse 18 about praying for each other continually, continually praying. And to be honest with you, I really don't think that many of us really understand the power of prayer. You know why? Because we don't pray as much as we ought. I think if we honestly understood the power of prayer, we would pray a whole lot more. But we are really good at worrying. We are really good at getting angry. We are really good at coming up with a plan and strategizing and stressing over things. And God all along is saying, bring it to me. Paul now has not been able to have any contact. He's concerned. This church, I wonder how they're doing. He's not just praying for them. He's praying for a bunch of other churches. You're going to see that in just a little bit. He's praying for many churches. When Paul listed his, his struggles in life and he listed how he was shipwrecked and left at sea so many nights and beaten this many times and so on, at the end of that list that he gives of all the suffering he's been through for the church, he then adds on top of it, and also I have my daily concern for the body of Christ. So what does Paul do? He spent time each day praying for these people. Praying for these people. But we also see, go back to 1 Thessalonians. We see in this letter, 
a couple of things that Paul prayed for the church in Thessalonica. He didn't just say, I give thanks to God always for you, constantly ministering in my prayers. Actually, we see, a, and I'm not going to list all of them, but I'm going to show you a couple here in 1 Thessalonians that he actually prays for them. Because I think that's going to help us set the stage for where he's going in these letters. Go to 1 Thessalonians 3. Look at verses 10 through 13. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, he says, As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He says, first off, we've been praying that we get to see you again. Because when we would love to see you again, we didn't get to spend as much time with you as we wanted to. We were chased out of town. But not only that, we're praying that you would increase in your love for each other and for everyone as our love for you is increasing. And also we're praying that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and the Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Go to chapter 5. Look at verses 23 and 24. He said that, we, that God would make you blameless. He says in verse 23 and 24, Now, another prayer, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Did anybody catch what he's praying here? He's not only praying that they would come to know the Lord more and that they would grow in their love for each other more. He's also praying that God would be able to finish his work of getting them ready for the return of Jesus. Do you see it? It's all tied to the return of Jesus, at the coming of Jesus. Folks, that's why, as I prayed about what we're, book we were to study next, or books we were to study next after the book of James, I felt like God said, Jim, I want to use you to teach First and Second Thessalonians, to teach them how to grow in their walk with me, to grow in their love for each other, and to get them ready for the Lord Jesus' return. That's what I want to do. That's, that's the call of my ministry. That's what Just a Preacher Ministry's main passion is. I mean, if people come to save, Saving Faith through our ministry, praise the Lord. But our focus is not on the lost. Our focus is on the church and get them ready for Jesus Christ. By the way, as I said before we started recording, maybe I said it at the beginning, I don't remember. But we, I'm flying this weekend to Michigan to do a men's conference. And the theme of the men's conference is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, and the title is called, We're the First. And if you read 1 Peter 4, 17, it says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of the people that don't know the Lord? In other words, what I'm going to be showing these men on, over the weekend is I'm going to be showing them that as much as the Bible says in the book of Revelation that God's going to deal with the world, very clear what he's going to do, and he's going to deal with the world. How many of us have noticed that before he gives us what he's going to do with the world, he gives us a couple of chapters of letters to the church to get them ready for the return? In the same way, I'm going to encourage you, don't put your eyes on what's going on in the world. Put your eyes back on the Lord and what he's trying to do in you and through you to get you ready. And that's what Paul was praying. One of the many things he was praying, that they would be ready for Jesus's return. Now, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we're looking at tonight. 
And look at verses 9 and 10, just briefly. We won't break this down. We'll break it down in another, another study, not tonight. But for they themselves, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And you know what's interesting? Some of you know this, maybe some of you don't, but the early church was so focused on the return of Jesus and looking for the return of Jesus, they greeted each other. You probably already know this, don't you, Michael? How would they greet each other all the time? Maranatha. Maranatha. You know what that means? Till the Lord comes. Till the Lord comes. But you know what's happened over the years? We've kind of changed our focus not to being looking for the return of Jesus until the Lord comes We've been taught about this great revival that we're going to break out into the world and all this stuff. And we focused on here instead of here. Being ready for when the Lord comes. And folks, when you get our, mind, get our minds back to being ready for Jesus' return, if your time here on this earth is short or if your time here on the earth is long, it doesn't make a difference because you're focusing on the return of Jesus Christ. I've said this for years. Jesus is going to return in your lifetime. You say, Jim, no one knows when the rapture is going to happen. I didn't say the rapture was going to happen in your lifetime. I said Jesus' return is going to happen in your lifetime. Because at the moment you leave this world, he's going to come and get you. He's promised to do that, has he not? So his return is happening in your lifetime. You may have 10 years, you may have 50 years, you may have 100. But are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? That's where we're going to be going in our study I want to get you ready for the return of Jesus, that he would make you blameless and ready for that time. Now, before we move on to verse number three, I want to show you something else that Paul prayed for all of the churches he wrote to that he brought out in this letter. He thanked God for them because he knew that the body of believers, the family of Jesus, was a gift from God and a blessing from God that he was grateful for. Look again at verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then he goes on and he, and he thanks God for what we're going to look at next in verse 3. But why is he thanking God for them? You may not realize this because sometimes when we get in issues with our brothers and sisters in the church, we may not realize it, but the body of Christ is a gift of God to us. The Bible says that over and over. Now, let me give you a quick example. I want to show our hands here. How many of you would agree it's getting kind of hard to live as a follower of Jesus in this crazy world? Doesn't it help when we start to feel more and more like aliens to know that there's other aliens around? Folks, you have no idea how much I look forward to Tuesday nights, not just to teach the word, which I love to do, but just to see your faces. You guys are an encouragement to me. A lot of times, I don't care about numbers in that sense, but I'll ask my wife or my daughter who's doing all the live stream, how many people were tuned in? That's an encouragement to me. Here's why. Because that means that there are others out there who are serious about the word of God and love for the Lord. And folks, we need each other. And Paul said, I thank God for you. You're a gift from God. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. 
in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. I thank God for the fact that not only are you an encouragement to me, that I'm not the only alien here. You guys are partners with me in the gospel. I look around and I thank God for Chris Wilson and others and Elise and Becky and others who are helping this ministry get out. We're partnering together. I use my gifts. They use theirs. And thank God for it because those of you that are listening right now online, if there weren't these other people doing the sound and the video and the technology, you wouldn't be hearing this because I don't know how to do it. And I've tried. Not good at it. I can do this. But the other parts of the body are necessary. And I thank God for that. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. All right. Look again. We thank God for you. Why? Because of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of time, I'm not going to break it down too much. But I want to quote to you a couple of passages we know pretty well. If you want to go and turn to them, you can. But in Ephesians 1, verses 15 and following, Paul has just said that those who believe are sealed with the Spirit of God. And he says, he, he, he thanks God that upon hearing of their faith and their Lord Jesus, and lay faith in the Lord and their love for each other, he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would know Christ better that they would know three things. Now, don't miss how he words this. That they would know the hope to which he's called us, the glorious inheritance we have in the saints, going to come back to that in a second, and the mighty power available for us who believe. Now, don't miss that. He prayed for three things. That they're saved, they have a faith in the Lord, they have a love for the church. Now, he's praying three things. That they would have the Spirit of God open their eyes to the hope that's really ours, the confidence that we have in our salvation, he also prayed that they would understand the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. But in between those two, he said, and the glorious inheritance we have in the saints. That's why I tried to tell you that the body of Christ is a gift from God. By the way, <laughs> you know when you get to heaven, those people in the church that rub you wrong, they're going to be there. They're going to be there. They're actually a part of the gift. They've been saved just like you are through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like you don't always allow Jesus to have control of you, they may not always allow Jesus to have control of them, but don't ever lose sight of the fact that that is part of the gift that we've been given. And then he goes on in chapter 3 of Ephesians, and he says this, starting in verses 14 through 21. And he says, my also, my, another prayer I pray for you is this. He said, I pray that you would come to know the height, the width, and the depth, and the breadth of the love of God. But he didn't pray it the way I just said it. He said, I pray that together with all of the saints, you would come to know the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of God. I'm going to say something to you right now. If you try to live your Christian life as a renegade, some of you might be listening online because you feel safer at home. I thank God for this technology, but don't let that keep you from getting involved in a group of believers. Don't use that as an excuse to meet together as is the habit of some. But we're to be meeting together all the more as we say the day approaching. And you will never experience the full height, depth, breadth of the love of God without the full body of Christ. My prayer is that together with all the saints, 
you'll understand the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. By the way, you're welcome to join us. There's a group of us that are here that meet at Wendy's every Tuesday night before Bible study. We're quite a scene. We move tables all around, set up a big, 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 big table, and we all sit together and eat Wendy's. Not because it's great food. It's great fellowship. And before Bible study even happens, we're all looking forward to getting together. But why? Because we're really understanding the benefit of who we are and what God's given us in the church. We too should be grateful to God for the gift of each other in Christ and our different gifts and encourage each other and pray for each other and pray together for each other. Satan would try to have you live your Christian life alone. Don't let him. Now, we're not going to spend much time on verse 3. You say, yeah, I believe it when I see it. But go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. But there's something here that you might have missed. He goes on and he says in one of his many run-on sentences, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did anybody catch something there that's kind of familiar? You might not have caught it because it's not in the order you know it. But there's three things he brings out here that are in a slightly different order than the way you've all quoted it. You, you got your hand up here, Cindy. What is it? Okay, you thought you had it. Faith, hope, and love. Remember? 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. They're right there. Look at it again. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, what? The hope of salvation. There's the three again. Go to Colossians chapter 1. You might have caught it when I read it just a little bit ago. Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5. Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. All right? Faith, hope, and love, these three remain. Well, what is faith, hope, and love then, Jim? Well, according to what he just said to us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, we work for Christ using our gifts by faith in his word and his power. He said, your, your work of faith. We remember before our God and Father, your work of faith. Folks, hopefully your work for the Lord is totally being done by faith. If you are working for the Lord in hopes that God will give you points, you're not doing it by faith. You're doing it in your flesh. But when you do what God's asked you to do because you believe it's what God's word says and what he's gifted you to do, and you trust that he's going to empower it, you do it by faith. Oh, we labor together because of our love for God and each other. He then says not only your work of faith, but your labor of love. Again, we, 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 we labor together because of our love for God and each other. And we also remain faithful because of our hope and what is to come. And there he says it again, and steadfastness, that's perseverance, of our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why I keep going? 
Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is all the promises that he said are mine. And I don't want to be found to have fallen short of all the promises. And because of the hope, the confidence that I have in what is to come, that's what I keep going for. Are there times that I get tired? Yes. Are there times I get weary? Yes. Are there times I want to just take a break and just disappear? Definitely. Just like you do. Oh, go to Romans chapter 15. I want to show you something about who God is. In Romans chapter 15, look at verses 4 and following, and then we're going to jump to verse 13. In verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Oh, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another or accept one another as Christ has welcomed or accepted you for the glory of God. Jump to verse 13. May the God of what? Hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Do you see it? There it is again. We need each other. We need each other and we need to encourage each other. Well, how can I encourage you if I'm not encouraged? Well, that's true. Well, how do I get encouraged? God's word, his spirit, he encourages me. And then how I encourage you is I point you to the word of God. I don't encourage you by saying, oh, it'll be okay. Because you could turn around and say, well, how do you know it's going to be okay? And all I could say is, well, I just kind of hope it's going to be okay. No, I know it's going to be okay because of the word of God, because of the promises. Go to Romans 8. Maybe you're not there yet. Let me give you a little more hope. Let me give you a little more encouragement. Go to Romans 8. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Stop. How does Paul know? How is Paul so confident that he can say, I'm telling you, as bad as your life is here on the earth, as much suffering as you're going through, as much turmoil, as much grief, sorrow, what is to come will make you not remember a second of it. How does Paul know this? He's been there. By the time he wrote this, he'd already seen it. He wasn't allowed to talk about it. He goes, well, let me fill you in on something. What is to come isn't even worth comparing with what you're going through now. For the creation, Paul says, not only do I know something you don't know, creation knows something you don't know. For the creation waits as well with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Remember, it was cursed at the fall, too. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that seems not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. He says, look, I know something you don't know. 
I've seen heaven. Can't talk about it. He won't let me talk about it. But I'll tell you this much. What's to come is going to blow away any concern for what you're going through here. It's just going to supersede it. Creation also knows, because God has said so in his word, that they will be redeemed as well and restored. But creation's waiting for you guys to get raptured first. Creation knows that after the revealing of the sons of God and the rapture, that's when we get our new bodies. Creation knows they're next. And if you know the Bible and what it talks about during the tribulation period, as Jesus opens the seals and that's the title deed to the earth, the earth is going to be worked over. It's going to go through some suffering, but at the end, it's going to be all renewed. And then he goes on and he says, oh, and by the way, I didn't read those verses. He said the Holy Spirit within us. He knows a lot of stuff we don't know. He, don't, he knows why God's putting us through what he's putting us through. And before we even ask the Holy Spirit to help us pray, the Holy Spirit's already praying for us in accordance with what God's purposes are. Folks, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. I don't have any answers. All I was told is it's going to happen and it's going to be amazing. What's heaven going to be like, Jim? Well, pretty good. No, way more than that, isn't it? And are you guaranteed that you're going there? Yes. He's given you his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Are there days that I'm weary? Yes. Are there days that I want to take a break? Yes. Are there days that I wonder if is it worth it? Yes. That's why I need you. That's why you need me. On those days when it looks like Saul's going to win and David's hiding in the rocks in the caves and wanting to quit, a Jonathan can come and strengthen his hand in God. And all Jonathan did was remind him of what God had said. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and following now. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. We'll see how far we get. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Bible, the, folks, the Bible says very clearly, that there must be evidence of salvation for you to have real salvation. To just say, I believe, is not enough. In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, you can look at it later. The Bible says, when these people in that time saw the miracles Jesus did, they believed in his name. And we would say, hey, they believe, they're saved. No, the very next verse it says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Because he knew what was in man. He didn't need man to testify about man. He knew that their faith wasn't real. So just saying you believe is not enough. But Jim, I was baptized. I know lots of people that were baptized and aren't in heaven. Your baptism isn't what saves you. 
There has to be an evidence that your salvation is real. And so Paul says, hey, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because the gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Go to James chapter 2. Look at verses 14 through 17. Again, let me just show you a couple of passages that illustrate that just saying you have faith is not enough. James 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works or evidence? Can that kind of faith, that's what it means in the Greek, can that type of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Words don't do anything. It's action that helps, is what he's saying. So also, faith by itself if it does not have works or evidence, is dead. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verses 7 through 9. Hebrews 6, verses 7 through 9. I love how he says this. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives the blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and, is, and, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What he said was this. He said, look, when the rain falls on the land, the land receives the same rain. But some places spring up produce and whatever it is that's pr productive. Others produce just thorns and thistles. They all received the same rain, but how they responded to it showed where they really were. And he said in the same way, God's drawing everyone in some shape, measure, or form. Everyone has an opportunity to be saved. But how we respond to the gospel, the true evidence of real salvation will be seen over time. But there has to be evidence of salvation. Not just saying you're okay. Well, Jim, I've been a member of my church for I don't know how many years. Good for you. That might actually have done you more damage than good. I don't know. Depends on the church. But at the same time, is there an evidence of your salvation? Oh, I think we already saw what some of that evidence would look like. Faith, hope, love. We're not going to look at it now because of time, but in Matthew 18, verses 18 through 23. Matthew 18, verses 13 through, sorry, Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. Jesus tells the parable of the soils and he explains it in those verses. And he talks about how the seed will fall on the hard path. And actually, if you go look at Jesus' explanation, he said the seed was sown in their hearts. But the enemy came and took it away. They didn't understand it and he took it away. The other seed fell on rocky soil, sprung up, sure looked like salvation. There was apparently something that looked like salvation, but over time trouble came. And God didn't do for them what they thought he was going to, and they went away. And then some seed fell on the thorny soil. Again, sprung up, gave some type of a response, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it. And they're more interested in living for here than the life to come. And it withered because it had no root. But some seed fell on the good soil. 
and it produced a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Don't compare how much results you have in your life to others. But at the same time, is there evidence of your salvation? Well, Jim, I've been working hard. I've been telling people about Jesus. I've been doing all these things. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that many are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name and in your name cast out demons? If your faith is what you've been doing for Jesus, your faith is in your work, not his work. What does the Bible say that real evidence of salvation is going to look like? The evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy and peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Real evidence, real evidence that Jesus is in us. The believers in Thessalonica continued their continued faith despite severe persecution and affliction was evidence that they were good soil. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We already saw earlier, but look at chapter 3 again. We're going to read verses 1 and following. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul said, I didn't know if you were a hard path, rocky soil or a thorny soil. But I've come to hear that you were good soil. Because you've survived all those tests and you're staying in faith. Only over time will our lives give true evidence of salvation. By the way, I'm going to go somewhere that I, I want you to go with me, but don't, don't run too far ahead or don't get offended by what I'm about to say. In a weird way, I kind of like the wickedness that is increasing. Stick with me. For many years, it's been easy to pretend to be a Christian. It's getting harder now to pretend to be a Christian. It's making my job a little bit easier. Oh, the crowds may be smaller that I speak to, but they're hungrier. Do you understand what I'm saying? As I've shared with you before, Adrian Rogers said years and years before he died, it's getting gloriously dark. We, for a long time in the church, I remember back in the 60s and the 70s, especially, and definitely in the 80s, there was this movement of trying to let the world know that we're not in much different from them. We're just like you. We're just forgiven. When all through the scriptures said, we're not like the world. We're not to be anything like the world. We're a peculiar people. We're a strange lot. We're a group of people that believe that there is only one God and only one way to heaven. And that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We believe that this book was written by God every single word and breathed by God. We don't question it. We study it, treasure it, believe it even though the world says we're dumb because we're living in a day of increased knowledge and we know so much more now, Jim. Uh, 
Call me stupid. Call me ignorant. I'm going to preach this book until the day I die. And as the world, well, the Bible says over and over in the last days, there's going to be an apostasy. A falling away from the faith. A move to just bring all the religions together because what's more important is that we just have peace on the earth instead of people that would actually be, well, we're troublemakers if we're going to actually stand on the fact that there is absolute truth. Are you willing to not be an intentional jerk, but be considered a jerk? One of the evidences of real salvation is a standing for the word of God. But careful, demonstrated in love and gentleness and peace. Remember Jesus when he was standing before Pilate? I mean, he's the creator of the world. When they came to arrest him, he said, who have you come for? Knowing full well who they came for. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. If you look at the Greek, he didn't say, I am he. In the Greek, he just said, I am. And they all fell backwards. Did he have the authority and the power to stop it? Definitely. But he submitted himself to the role that the father had for him, even though it was suffering. We want to design a Christianity without being persecuted. We want to make Christianity more palatable so people will like us more. So we won't get rejected from the country club or whatever. Folks, let me just say this to you. Don't go out and try to be offensive. The gospel is offensive all by itself. But the Bible also says that we are to make best use of the time, knowing the days are evil. And we are to give answers that are gentle, seasoned with salt. Don't win an argument by being the loudest. But just gently share. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must gently instruct in the hopes that God will bring him to an understanding. Folks, we, we pride ourselves on saying, we're right, everybody's wrong, right, right, right. That's, that's not winsome. Oh, I'm not saying don't say we're right and everybody's wrong. If you're, what you're standing on is what the word of God says. But do it gently and lovingly. Pilate stood before Jesus and Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate said to Jesus, don't you realize I have the authority to have you released or have you put to death? And Jesus calmly, because his eyes were on the Father, he submitted himself to the Father. He didn't revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He looked at Pilate and he said, you'd have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my Father. Folks, do you know the word of God well enough and believe it enough to walk out into this world gently, comfortably, even if family members think you're crazy and just love them because you know you're right? Do you remember when you were a parent and your kids really needed a nap? And you said, you need a nap. And they were like, no, I don't need a nap. It's something else. And you just calmly, lovingly, hopefully, you didn't duct tape them to the bed. You calmly, lovingly brought them into their room and you patted their head. You stroked their hair and they fell asleep. You were right. And you knew you were right. You could have duct taped them to the bed. But you gently held f firm to what you knew was the truth. Of course, they'd wake up three hours later and say, yeah, I guess I was tired. Folks, one day the Bible says they're going to acknowledge that we were right. 
but don't expect it here. Oh, pray for it. We want them to come to a knowledge of the truth. We want them to know. We want them to receive the mercy we've received. But true evidence of salvation is not being the loudest, but being the boldest with calmness. Go to 1 Peter. Chapter, chapter 1. Nope, sorry, chapter, chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 13. But who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the what? The hope that is in you. Yet do it with a bullhorn. No. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Go to Ephesians. Chapter 5. Let's start in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But look closely at how we expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, thus debauchery, but be being filled with the Spirit. And then, of course, he goes addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, make melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says at the beginning, he says, look, try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Then he says, know what the will of God is. What he says is this. How do we expose the darkness if, if it's shameful to even talk about the things they do in secret? We live as children of the light. We allow the light of Christ to shine on us and through us so that when we are there, people can tell there's a difference. You don't even have to say it half the time. Oh, be ready, though, to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Are you known as the one who preaches all the time to your friends? Or are you known as the one 
that when your friends who don't know the Lord have a real question about things of the Spirit, that you're someone they could go to, and they're not going to get a sermon. A lot of you have a tendency to try to, you have your prepared speech that you're going to give when you go share the gospel. No, the Bible actually says that we're to, as we go into each situation, let the Spirit of God show us what to say and when to say and when to speak and when not to speak. Mary and Martha both said word for word the exact same things to Jesus in John chapter 11. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus gives Martha a sermon, but he gives Mary a hug. Are you... Gentle enough to know that God's in control and that he's going to use you in whatever way. I'm going to close with Hebrews chapter 10 tonight and then we'll pick back up in Thessalonians where we left off next week. But go to Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 and then 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 and 32 through 39. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Go to verse 32 through 39. For you have need of what? Endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For you little, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians saying, I wasn't sure if what had been, been begun there was real or in vain. And I've heard that it's real. And not only have I heard that it's real, word has spread that it's real. Now here's my focus as I write to you. I'm going to pray that you come to know God more, that you trust in him more, that your faith will increase, your love will increase, your hope will increase, you'll get stronger together, and that you will be ready and looking for the return of Jesus. Folks, his return is soon. I hope you're ready. Let's help each other get there. I love you. Thanks for coming.